Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of having a conversation with a J. Pages, first-degree Canadian black belt, Matthew McPeak. I had the honor of attending Matt's Backpack Attacks class at the 2021 Arizona BJJ Globetrotters Camp. The efficacy of Matt's teaching, and in particular his execution of the backpack concept, is immediately evident. As soon as we started, I knew this is something I needed to learn ASAP, and this is someone who I need to study and keep an eye on go forward. In the episode, we learn about why Matt left his original academy as a brown belt, his path to becoming a BJJ Globetrotter instructor, how he went from Ronin to black belt, his holiday BJJ gift-related suggestions, and so much more. Some housekeeping notes. This is another one of those episodes where we go deep into positional conversation, and as such, I would highly recommend going to the Forever White Belt Facebook page to watch the corresponding videos posted there. Just a reminder to please give us a five-star review on iTunes or just share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. And leave us feedback and suggestions at anchor.fm forward slash Forever White Belt. Also, like our Facebook page to get all the latest at facebook.com forward slash Forever White Belt. And check us out on Instagram at Forever White Belt Show. Hey everyone, it's the holidays, so go buy our Forever White Belt swag at teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. And with that, I give you Matthew McPeak. Matt, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. So last time I saw Matt, we were at Globetrotters, actually Arizona. My first experience with Globetrotters. And little did I know, I went down the Matt rabbit hole and I see all of this stuff with Globetrotters and yourself. First of all, for the listeners, can you even explain what Globetrotters is? Yeah, the, the BJJ Globetrotters, it's the, the brainchild of, uh, of Christian who, uh, who runs the whole show. He's, uh, he's the leader, uh, leader of the cult. Okay, Christian Grogart. Okay, yeah, okay. so you know, it kind of all started that um, you know Christian wrote a book, and that's where I kind of got introduced to the to the whole globetrotter thing. And he he wrote a book about his uh, travels across Europe and Asia, through the U.S. and down through South America, and you know it, it kind of took off, and um, you know people were were drawn in by his story. And if you ever meet, well, you've met the guy, um, his his personality. And basically, it's, uh, it's a great opportunity to uh, get together with like-minded people um, for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, travel to some uh, cool spots, uh, hang out for a week, um, live together, train together, and, um, you know, have some adult social time, uh, you know, afterwards. So um, it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty cool experience. Um, I always like to say, you know, it's, it's serious Jiu-Jitsu, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. <laughs> <laughs> So Matt, I know that you've taught at uh, several of these in several different locations, correct? Yep. Yeah. So my the, the first time I, I did a camp was back in 2015, mm-hmm. and it was the first time that uh, Christian had run a camp in the U.S. and it was in this uh, cool spot in uh, New Hampshire, right on the lake. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea what I was getting into. Only that after reading the book, I said, "I, w- I want to do this." And mm-hmm. uh, the camp came up, and I said, "Well, it's about you know, it's about a ten-hour drive for me. It's doable, so so let's go." And wow. um, yeah, so I started. I started doing it there, and um, I did a, a bunch of camps as a, as a camper. And then uh, in 2018, uh, the U.S. camp moved to uh, to Maine, where it currently sits now, and I actually got my black belt at camp. 
And then after that, Christian was kind of like, you know, if you want to teach camps, you know, let me know which ones you want to go to and, and we'll kind of hook it up. So I've taught at the main camp. I've taught in Arizona, went to Iceland in 2019. I was supposed to go to uh, to Austria last year, <laughs> but uh, that got uh, that got canceled because of the pandemic. Yeah, the Arizona camp was uh, this year was the first one that I've been to been able to go to in, in two years, so it was okay. uh, great to be back. I knew I missed it, but I didn't realize how much I missed it till I was actually on the mats with everybody again and and, and being able to you know train and teach and and catch up and w- with some some old friends from camp and then uh, and meet some new people. And uh, next year I'll be uh, teaching uh, Arizona again in March, the main camp in June, and then. Uh, heading off to Estonia for the beach camp in July. So I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. For you people that don't know, the way these camps are sort of worked out per hour, there's like a different black belt, tons of black belts at the Arizona one. It was was really impressive. Over a five, seven day period between these various classes, some of the classes, some blocks of them, there's open mats. So there's a whole strategy to attending this thing as the uh, attendee. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and you learn that pretty quick. Like people ask me, you know, what, what sage advice can you give me for going to camps? Mm. And I'm always kind of like, don't try to do everything because yeah. uh, you'll, you'll burn out after about the second day of doing that. And, uh, you know, so pace yourself, hydrate and make sure you eat because it's a large volume of training. I think, you know, I didn't do an exact count, but I think I spent p- close to 40 hours on the mats at the Arizona camp. So you're putting your body through a lot of extra training and it's fun, but it does catch up after for a while. I know that the week after I got back from camp, I took it easy. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I noticed the young guys, they went right into it. Like they were at every open mat initially, right? Yeah. Towards the end, they were missing classes and stuff because they were super banged up. I took the opposite approach where I almost avoided all of the open mats, uh, except just a couple and just for a brief period, because I just wanted that content so badly, you know, from all those elite instructors. But in retrospect, I wish I would have rolled just a little bit more at the open mats because I nearly attended every single class, except like the morning yoga. There's morning yoga every day too, people. It's, It's incredible. Yeah, that, I think that saved me this camp. And, uh, mm-hmm. and Jen Carson, who teaches, uh, who teaches now, she started teaching um, a lot of the yoga courses for the U.S. camps. Um, mm-hmm. Is very good at it. So she's, uh, she's a blue belt in jujitsu. So she understands the, the bumps and bruises and uh, everything that we go through on a daily basis. So she develops the yoga, yoga for jujitsu type of approach there. So it's, uh, yeah, it was good. It was nice to get in there and stretch out and get ready for, for the next day. But yeah, you're right. There's an immense amount of content to pick up from a technical standpoint, gi, no gi, everything from leg locks to positionals control to, you know, guard passing, whatever it is, there's always a, a great amount of content there. And then, yeah, the, the open mats, which is, uh, I, which I, I really like. Cause it gives me an opportunity to roll with, I think at that camp, we had 170 people. So yeah. that's 170 people that you've never rolled with before. You don't know what their game is. They don't know your game. So you kind of test stuff out and uh, what might be working at your, your home club with people that, you know, well, you know, you find that person that's got the, uh, the perfect counter to your game and it's a great opportunity to, uh, to adjust and learn. So I take a lot away from the instruction side of it, always picking up little pieces of knowledge, but uh, wow. I do enjoy testing what I'm working on and uh, against uh, people that I've never rolled with at different belt levels and uh, see what works and, and, and make those adjustments. So I think that's one of the reasons why I miss camp so much because um, yeah. I've used it as a vehicle to really um, accelerate my learning and pick up you know tidbits of knowledge. And then, as I say, kind of pressure test what, I, what I'm doing and make sure that it works you know, against a, a well-rounded you know, skill set of uh, different jujitsu players. What was amazing too is to see all you black belts actually rolling with white belts too on the regular, a lot of them. 
Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it, it, it's kind of a strange thing, right? Jiu-jitsu is, it's odd. It depends on, um, you know, the, the culture of your gym. Mm. And, you know, one of the things, you know, one of the things that Christians always says is that, you know, you can ask anyone to roll, right? And unless, unless you're injured or you're tired or you're on your way out, you know, everyone's willing to roll with everyone. And, but, but I can see, I can see the, uh, the color belts that come from schools where you're not supposed to ask the, the, the higher rank belt to roll. Cause they kind of sit in the corner, you know, they're kind of looking around and you can tell that they want to roll, but for, for whatever reason, they're not asking. And then after mm-hmm. a couple of days, you see them out there, they're grabbing everybody. And I think that's one of the nice things too. It gives people that are newer to jujitsu, you know, the, the white belts and the blue belts, an opportunity to roll with black belts and with brown belts. Cause there were a lot of black belts and brown belts at the, at the camp, yeah, um, both instructors and, and campers too. So um, it gives you a great opportunity to roll with some experienced people. And once again, pick their brain, you know, once again, test your game, you know, see what's working. And, and I think it's, you know, if, if you do it right, those camps kind of accelerate your game by a couple of months. I mean, you're throwing for most people, you're probably throwing in two months worth of training, you know, in a week, which is a lot, but you get a lot of repetition and you're just immersed in that whole jujitsu um, world for that week that uh, you tend to walk away with a, with a lot of knowledge, probably more than you think you do until you go back to your club and you start rolling and people are like, what did you just do to me? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. you're like, oh, I did this thing that I learned at camp. Right. And then that yeah. starts the whole conversation and, uh, you know, hopefully it, it hooks other people into, uh, into wanting to, to experience, uh, the whole, uh, the whole globe trotter thing. You're Canadian by right, correct? Yes, I was. I was born and raised on the east coast of Canada. So sometimes, uh, you know, the words that the words that come out, they're they're the very east coast with a you know bar and car and out and <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and um, I right now I live uh, I live in Burlington, which is uh, Burlington, Ontario, which is just outside of Toronto. And yeah, so I I started doing martial arts when I was about eight years old with judo. So about yeah, 40 years ago, almost 41 years ago and did judo for a long time and, and quite enjoyed it. I was a, I was a big kid. I was, uh, I think I was 260 pounds when I was 15 years old. So I, uh, I was, I was training with the, uh, with the university judo club, um, wow. which was, which was a great experience for me being that young, being able to, to, to train, uh, with some guys that were high, you know, a lot older and, and very competitive, mm-hmm. you know, politics came into play, the club shut down and I was kind of lost in, uh, and didn't have judo anymore. So kind of, you know, had some friends that did karate, some friends that did boxing. So we kind of, you know, before the UFC was the UFC, we'd go in the backyard and beat each other up and try to prove who's, who, who, who's the tougher guy. <laughs> then in university, I got into uh, kickboxing and into Hapkido, which is, uh, I call it, it's kind of the Korean, it's a kind of Korean jujitsu per se, kind of traditional art. And I earned my third degree black belt in, in Hapkido. Yeah. And then the jiu-jitsu club, when I moved to the area that I'm in now, I, I went to a club and it was kind of a, it was kind of a mixed bag of stuff going on there. There was some judo, there was some jujitsu, there was some boxing, hmm. um, there's some karate guys in there. And, uh, the guy that was running the club at that time decided that he wanted to get out and he sold it. And he happened to sell it to this guy that was doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So hmm. I kind of fell into Brazilian jiu-jitsu without even knowing about it. It's a humbling art, even with the extensive background that I had. My first role in Brazilian jiu-jitsu was with an 18-year-old guy that I probably had 50 or 60 pounds on. He took me down, jumped on my back, and choked me out probably in about two minutes. And I was like, wow, what is this, right? Yeah. I got to figure this out. Now, you watched it in the UFC and you saw it, but until you really experience 
how efficient and effective it is. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of mind blowing. So I started training in 2003 and stayed at that club for quite a long time. It became a, a bit of a, a toxic relationship and a toxic environment. Mm -hmm. And I made the decision when I was a four stripe brown belt to leave. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot of my friends were like, you're crazy. Like, what are you doing? And, wow. So you uh, suffered through a long time. Huh? Yeah, I was, I was there for quite a while. I think one of the reasons why I survived as long is uh, I was teaching there a lot. Like I had a lot of freedom to, to teach and to run classes and do my thing. Nice. Um, and, you know, so that was, you know, so that kind of worked and I had good friends that were there, but, you know, politics started to come into play, you know, some games were starting to, you know, to play around with, um, with the situation. And I was just like, I kind of had enough and, sure. um, you know, it was, it was a big decision, right? I have four straight mm -hmm. brown belt, you know, that close to, to getting your black, but I was kind of like, at this point I'd been going to camps for about mm -hmm. four years. So I met oh, wow. a lot of people, I met a lot of people and I was learning a lot from mm -hmm. the people that I met at camps and mm -hmm. that really accelerated my knowledge of jujitsu and where I wanted to go. And that's, you know, that, that globe trotter mentality, um, mm -hmm. of, of sharing jujitsu and traveling and, and kind of being, you know, kind of open source with it is, is how I wanted to go. And that was the complete opposite of, uh, of the Academy that I was training at. So sure. I made that decision to go and, um, you know, a few people kind of followed me. So we had a small group, you know, small group of, uh, you know, six to eight people that we get together a few times a week and train. Mm -hmm. And I continued, uh, you know, continued on doing my camps. And, but I was really kind of like, you know what, at some point I'll get my black belt when it happens, it happens. But I felt better about it because when I got my black belt, I wanted to represent my values of jujitsu and my coach's value and how he viewed jujitsu and how he was, you know, living his life in jujitsu was not how I wanted to do mine. Mm -hmm. And there was, you know, there was definite conflict there. You know, for example, you couldn't go to a seminar, you couldn't go to an open mat, you wouldn't be able to go to a camp without getting his permission. And I'm like, uh, you know, we're adults, mm -hmm. right? And I understand there, I understand there's loyalty and all those things to your schools, but at some point, um, you know, you have to allow cross training. Um, you know, you have to allow some, you know, some level of freedom. You have to have a home base, but you have to let people do what they want to do, especially if they're going to train with their friends or they're going on vacation. And they want to train. Um, they tell them that they and can't. It, do and it's 2021 for God's sake. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so they tell them that they can't do that um, was a little bit ridiculous. And, and, uh, and people will ask me like, after I left, they're like, well, why did you stay so long? And I said, well, you know, it was, it was okay because I was doing the globetrotter thing. I was traveling with work and, you know, typically when I traveled with work, I was hitting, you know, 15, 20 different gyms in the course of a year. Wow. So I was getting a lot of, I was getting a lot of exposure to different styles of jujitsu, different teaching styles. And it, it really, you know, helped form, you know, my game and what I wanted to do. So when I left, I was kind of like, oh, well, I'll continue to do globe trotters. I can continue to travel and train just because my belts, I have a brown belt. It doesn't matter. It doesn't stop me from learning. Yeah. So when I went to, went to the main camp in uh, 2018, unbeknownst to me, the, uh, the council of traveling black belts, um, had decided that, you know, since I had left and I was, uh, without, without a coach, without, without an official home that they so were, they were aware uh, of this. Yeah, they were aware. Yeah. Yeah. They were aware of it. Okay. Yeah. So I've got some really good friends, you know, through that and they were aware of it. And, uh, so, you know, I typically go to camp and, and, and roll with, you know, we're rolling with all the black belts and getting beat up and trying stuff out. And, they were being a little bit tougher than, than normal, but I was like, okay, this, this is good. Right. You know, this is, yeah. this is a fun camp. So I kind of got, uh, kind of got beat up by them every open mat throughout camp. And then, um, one of, one of the cool things that, that globetrotters will do is if you are someone that doesn't have a home base, 
and let's say you're a blue belt and you think, you know what, I've, I've done competitions, I've done this, I've done that, you know, I'd like to be assessed for my purple belt. You can go and ask and say, hey, I'm coming to this camp. I'd like to be evaluated for my purple belt in this situation. And then, you know, all the instructors will kind of roll with you and they'll give their, you know, they'll give their opinion. And if there's a unanimous vote that this first person should move on to purple belt, there'll be a promotion at the end of camp. So there's, there's usually, a, they, there was no promote. Well, I guess I got promoted with my first degree at the Arizona camp, this last one, but normally there's usually some belt, you know, some color belt uh, promotions that happen. So the, the last Saturday, last day camp, you know, do the big group photo. And then there were some belt promotions that were going on. And, you know, Christian was kind of like, you know, this one's a big one. And I'm thinking, wow, someone's getting a brown belt. Like, and I'm looking around the crowd and like, who's, you know, who's, who's about to get promoted. Right. Cause there were, there were a few people there that were purple belts that, um, that had been there for a long time and that were, that were solid. And so I'm kind of thinking, you know, what's going on. And, uh, you know, Christian gives a speech. This is a big belt. You know, you know, these are, you know, we like to promote people when they, they don't care about the belt. They're just in it for the jujitsu. They're in it for the fun. They're in it for the, for the love of, for the love of the sport and the art. And as he, you know, he's pulling the belt out of his bag, he goes, the only thing that's missing on this is a maple leaf. And I just, I almost lost it. It took everything. It took every ounce of strength that I had not to lose. And I was wearing sunglasses at the time. I saw, so was, I saw the picture. So, There's a great picture on Instagram, people. You got to yeah. go see it. So good friend of mine, Jeremy Laughlin, um, who's, who's taught at camps, he's standing right behind me. And I turn around and he's just like, we got you. And uh, yeah, so I, 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 I got promoted by complete surprise, which... You know, I think that's that's the best way to get it is when you totally don't expect it and you're totally blindsided by it. And it was great to get it from a group of people that that I trusted, that had become really good friends of mine. And it wasn't one person's opinion of my skill set. It was it was a group of people, right? So that's why I I, I have a really really deep connection with with Globetrotters and with the camps, and uh, we'll always kind of promote it. And I'm always willing there to um, to help out people. Um, you know, since I got my black belt, I have, I have two affiliate schools in Ontario and, you know, I've kind of, I've kind of adopted a lot of different people that have, that have kind of been lost, um, mm-hmm. especially, especially after COVID with some, with some schools closing down. Mm-hmm. And I, and I just think it's my, it's, it's my obligation, um, to the jujitsu community to, to pick up those people and help them out and make sure that they, that they don't lose out on the opportunity to, uh, to train. And if they're with me for six months, that's great. They move on, but, uh, you know, I kind of, I kind of like doing that and, and we've got a good group of people now and um, it's, it's been a good journey. <laughs> it's gotcha. definitely been a good journey. And that's how I met, uh, you know, through Globetrotters, I met Jay Pages who hosted the, uh, the Arizona camp and I'm now under Jay Pages um, for getting my ranks for black belt. Okay. I thought so. so. I was confused yeah. about that. Cause in the picture I saw Christian giving you the black belt, but then yeah. when I looked at your belt checker, it says J pages, J pages. So yeah. I wasn't really clear what was happening there. Yeah. So Jay, so Jay adopted me. Um, mm-hmm. He adopted me through all that stuff. So he, he's a great guy. So I owe a yeah. lot to the entire uh, Globetrotters organization and, and to Jay and, and to Christian for, for helping me out and letting me do my thing, right. Yeah. Coming and teaching at camps and, uh, and being part of the whole organization. It's uh, it's, it's been a fun ride and it's something I you know plan to do for as long as I can uh, still make it on the mats. Right. And for you listeners out there, just to FYI, Jay Pages is a Kyotera black belt. Um, I don't know how many degrees he is, but he's, he's incredible. Yeah. Um, he's a third degree. I think he's getting close to getting his fourth. And yeah, yeah. Jay's, Jay's a phenomenal guy. He's got a you know great That's background. Great He's on MMA. He's done a ton of, uh, you know, fight to win type promotions and things like that. And a solid guy. And he's a, he's a fun guy. And you saw, you saw after, uh, 
on the, the last night of camp there when the when the fun was going on you know he, he's 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 got a good sense of humor and he doesn't take himself too seriously the wig and everything yeah <laughs> yeah the wig and um, everything exactly but i want to talk to you about canadian jiu-jitsu because we spoke with uh, drew weatherhead a while ago and it's a really interesting history that you guys have there in terms of jiu-jitsu it sounds like you were lucky enough to find a black belt granted there were some business issues or whatever but it sounds like a lot of you old school canadian jiu-jitsu guys oftentimes were a bit ronin in that there weren't there weren't even black belts oftentimes available for a lot of practitioners up there. So you sometimes you'd have to rely on some traveling black belt from elsewhere to come in and deal with it. And it sounds like you've adopted a couple different groups of people. I don't know if they're official academies or whatever they may be. Can you touch on that? Do you share any kind of experience with that in terms of that Canadian experience? (laughs) Yeah, it, it was interesting. I, I'm going to say the first wave of Brazilian jiu-jitsu in Canada happened in, I want to say 96, 97. But as you said, it was a very rare sighting to see a black belt. You know, there were a few. So, you know, in Ontario, I am in Southern Ontario and Toronto. You've got a good population base, right? Toronto's yeah. the third largest city in US and Canada, third to, to New York and LA. So it's, gotcha. it's a big population base. Yeah. And my coach at the time, the, the one that, uh, that I stayed with for that time until I left, he, you know, he started as a blue belt. And I remember going to tournaments and, you know, if a purple belt showed up, it was like, you know, it was a sighting of a unicorn. You'd be like, oh my God, there's a purple belt here. We got to go see what they're doing. Yeah. And this was, you know, for maybe for some of these people listening to the podcast, you know, it'll be hard. It'll be, it'll be hard for them to fathom this, but this was before YouTube. This is before, you know, just, you know, streaming, you know, streaming training content. So the only way that you really got to get to see new material was you traveled somewhere you ordered VHS tapes yeah. from, from Brazil, right. Or you went to tournaments and you filmed every match and you wow. analyzed what someone was doing. So, you know, back in that day, it was still very tribal, right? Like it was like your gym against someone else's gym. And because at that point, you know, maybe someone else's gym, they specialized in, you know, De Hiva, right? And you guys, we specialized in like, you know, half guard or, or whatever it was. So it was sure. interesting to see the battles between different clubs at that time. And, you know, the the whole Creonte thing was, was still kind of alive back then. But it, it was very interesting that you would go and a lot of tournaments at that point, it wasn't even by belt. It was, you know, have you been training less than three years? Okay. Well, the, you're in the beginner division. If you've been training three years or more, you know, you're in the advanced division. So you, you just kind of go in there and, uh, you know, you kind of bang it out and, and beat each other up. You know, I think it was back in 2014 there, it was the very first, uh, ADCC trials in Canada. And I'd only been training for a couple of years and out of pure brutality and going in there and, and trying to beat each other up. I actually, I actually qualified for the ADCCs through, wow. through that Canadian trial. But at that time, that's when it was still over in, in Abu Dhabi and I didn't have the means to do it. So yeah. it was kind of a, kind of a lost opportunity, but it's kind yeah. of a cool piece of jujitsu history, cool. you know, Canadian history. I wasn't the only one, but there, you know, there are other people there too, but I was kind of like, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So yeah, tournaments were different back then. Rule sets were different. It was kind of hard core. And yeah, it, you're right. It was it, it was very hard to find a black belt. And when you did, you took the opportunities that, that you could get. You know, Marcus Suarez, who is a Carlson Gracie direct student with, you know, he came to Canada in yeah. the early 90s. So Marcus was one of the pioneers of, uh, of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in Canada. And that's, that's the, the kind of the team that I was under mm. until I left, uh, you know, back in 2017. And I still train with, I still train with some of the guys that are under Marcus and, uh, you know, I still see him and still interact with him and he's out in Vancouver, but 
he would come to the Toronto or he'd do his, his cross, uh, cross Canada tour and, and come and see people. So everyone would kind of flock, you know, you would see a Brazilian top team, you know, had a group in Montreal. So there were a few black belts here and there, but nowhere near the, nowhere near what you have now. You know, there's like a club on every corner. When I started, you had a choice of, you know, maybe two or three places and you're going to have to drive 30, 40, 50, maybe an hour, you know, to get to them. But now it's, uh, they're all over the place. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the pandemic kind of hit a bunch of them and, and some of them have shut down, but it's definitely a, a booming sport here in Canada and, uh, you know, just started back getting the tournaments running again. So there's, there's a lot of excitement and, uh, you know, hopefully we uh, pull through it and we kind of get back to uh, a normal state, you know, going into 2022. I certainly hope so. You know, it was amazing. Your contingent, you guys had quite a few uh, Canadians come to the Globetrotters Arizona camp. I was amazed and they yeah. were all fantastic. And <laughs> there was some uh, black belts there and their classes were great. Rolling with them was fantastic. They were just really good people. Yeah. I think when I first started going to the camps, I think there was like two or three Canadians and then it just started to kind of grow and grow and grow. And, uh, you know, the camp in Maine that happens in the summer, I think there's there's typically kind of 40, 50, 60 Canadians out of that group that goes there. And I think we had 21 in Arizona. And then one of my good friends, Kyle Sleeman, he was, uh, he taught, he taught at camp yeah. too. A couple of things I want to talk about, which basically pertain to what you taught at the class and your instructionals. So first of all, let's talk about this thing you refer to as the power line. Can you explain to the listeners what the power line is and how they can utilize it? Yeah. So it's interesting when you watch instructionals or you watch people teach and there's things that people do that either they're naturally doing it or they've built that habit through repetition doing it, or they just, they kind of know it's the right thing to do, but they never talk about it and they never teach it. And these are these concepts of jujitsu that I think if you could learn them early and you understand them, it can really accelerate your game. You know, kind of the way that we teach jujitsu is it's very situational. If they do this, you do this. If you do Mm -hmm. that, you do that versus concept. So, I mean, you met Pritt, Pritt, teaches a defensive concept, kind of like what we do in boxing, right? I mean, in boxing, they teach you to defend yourself first, right? Before you really throw a punch or you do anything else, they teach you proper defense, you know, so that concept of it. So as I sat there through my journey and kind of looking at stuff, and I I started getting these aha moments, like, holy crap, this technique works because of this, right? I was doing it this way. I didn't like it. It didn't work for me. But now that I see this concept, you know, kind of makes sense to me. And where a lot of this started clicking for me, I had the privilege to train with uh, with Hicks and Gracie, you know, and they talk about invisible jujitsu. And it was a cool experience because Hickson actually came around during the training camp and he, you know, he interacted with us and he, you actually got to try some stuff and it was like, okay, do your arm bar this way. Right. And you do it. And he says, that's good. But he goes, now make this adjustment. And you were like, holy crap. Why didn't I think of that? Right. Like, why am I a brown belt only learning really how to do an arm bar now when I could be doing that as a white belt? So one of the fundamental concepts that I teach my students, I call it the power line. And it's, you know, basically it's, it's throughout the body, it's stand up, it's takedown, it's upper body, it's lower body, it's front, it's back. Hmm. I did an instructional on BJJ fanatics with it using a modified Kezikatami to kind of show it. But basically what it is, is controlling your opponent's upper body. Either your body placement is either from shoulder to hip or hip to shoulder. So you could be in a Kezikatami position, which would be hip to shoulder, or in kind of a north-south position where you'd be going shoulder to opposing hip. So it's always opposing hip. So it's that cross body that I want to control. And I want to control that center point, like in the diaphragm. So where your body kind of bends when you, Hmm. you know, when you start to do a set. So what it does, it kills the shoulder, it kills the hip. 
and it kills the center of the body. And you can control the head if you wanted to. If you want to be mean, you can do that. But what happens is it really limits your opponent's ability to move and to generate momentum and, and have mobility. I started playing around with that. And once again, I had a kind of an aha moment at actually at a, at a Globetrotter camp. And I was like, I stopped really listening to what the technique was. And I started watching what the instructor was doing. And I was like, okay, there's something here, right? I started mm-hmm. picking up on stuff and I started playing with it. So, I mean, you'll see it. It's basically, you know, the seatbelt concept kind of thing or in wrestling, you know, they do it in wrestling as well. But the thing is, most people don't talk about it as this is why the control works is because I'm, I'm hitting these positions so you can't move, right? I've, mm-hmm. I've kind of stapled you to the ground right. or I'm stapled onto your back or I've stapled myself to your legs and I'm preventing you from being able to really move or generate any form of energy to use your strengths and use your ability to get out. So it's a control um, concept. Right. It's, it's a control concept. And, and for me, once you set the trap, you get the control. Submissions will open up. You know, I, I had a conversation with, I was showing some technique last night at, at class and, you know, we were doing a Kimura setup from a position that I call Earl Grey or Earl teabag. Grey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, that's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. And if you want any more of that, you can go to the Globetrotter yeah. site and, and watch my video on there. But we were saying about the Kimura and he's like, well, what happens if, you know, he's holding on really tight and I can't get the Kimura? I said, well, that's fine. What he's telling you is I don't want to be kimura So now you move on to the specific choke that I was showing him. So I said, you never mm-hmm. force it. I control the position. And your opponent will tell you how they want to be submitted, Hmm. right? Rather than trying to force it. I like to show concepts where you have a high level of control. And while you're in that high level of control, you have multiple options for attacking the arms, right? Elbows, you know, wrist locks, elbow locks, shoulder locks, you know, choking, you know, whatever it is and vice versa. You can use the same kind of concept on the legs, which is, it's not as intuitive, Hmm. but the concept is there, but it's basically controlling the opposing hip and shoulder and that center line so that you can't sit up, you can't bring your hips up and you can't roll to one side or the other. And, you know, in what I taught in camp with the backpack attack, I was kind of doing that, right? Like I was sitting up high on the shoulder and facing right across that 45 degree angle yeah. to kind of control that body position. And now you know, that, that just, seems to be key, the 45 degrees, right? To, right. To a lot of this. Yeah. So, you know, and I tell people, you know, once you learn these concepts, what happens is, is I don't have to teach you an endless number of techniques you'll figure it out. If you follow the rules of the concept as a white belt or as a black belt or anywhere in between, whatever your game is, if you follow that concept, it'll work. So people ask like, well, when do you know when to transition? And I say, well, I know to transition when I start losing this. And when I transition, I either put my body in a position where I'm going from hip to shoulder or shoulder to hip. And I know when I get in that position, I have the highest level of control. And as Mm -hmm. you try to move and transition, I'll be able to follow and set up whatever that next control position is, or, you know, catch a, catch a submission and transition. So this is kind of a late stage type of control position, right? Because you've passed the feet, you've passed the knees at this point, and you're at some sort of torso control at this point, as yep. you were mentioning. What was really cool was your entry. Can you explain the entry? It wasn't a typical sort of back control where you're like right up on the guy. You seem to drop him down a little bit. Yeah. If you sit in close where you see a lot of people teaching back control with the seatbelt, you know, you're in close. I mean, I'm taller than you, but if we, if we were to sit down and get that close, 
our shoulders are going to be relatively at the same level. So when right. I go to do the seatbelt, you know, my, my elbow that's going over the shoulder is up pretty high. So it's hard. It's going to be hard for me to choke. My elbow is up high, which means it's easy for you to pop it off. Mm-hmm. Our hips are relatively square. You can use your hips to push against mine. So what I like to do is kind of drop back, you know, a couple of inches. And if I have whichever side I'm underhooking on the seatbelt, mm-hmm. I draw that shoulder into the center of my chest. So that starts to set up that angle of attack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then using head pressure to kind of force you to go in the direction I want, then you can adjust your feet and you can set up that backpack and cut into that, uh, that power line angle. So it makes it a lot easier. And then that, and at that point, your elbows are low, you know, you can, it's easier to access the neck. It's easier to access the arms and, and trap them with your legs and set up arm bar, shoulder locks. And uh, what I really like to do, you know, I showed at the, at the end of that class was setting up the, uh, the inverted triangles from there. Mm-hmm. How important is uh, hand fighting in this in this concept? I think hand fighting is one of the most important concepts in jujitsu that is next to takedowns is probably the most overlooked. Wow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Because, yeah. you know, if, if, you know, whoever wins the grip fight has the advantage. So mm-hmm. if I let you freely grab a hold of me or have those hands free to be defensive or even your mm-hmm. feet, right? Even if I allow your feet to be defensive um, and kind of go wherever they want, it makes it much more difficult than it needs to be to pass a guard, to put a pin in and, and to get a submission as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, once again, I think it's something that we need to practice. I, once again, I had the advantage of doing judo for a lot of years that hand fighting was instilled in me because, yeah, you know, the whole thing of judo is a, de- is a defense, like don't let someone grab a hold of you. If you can't sure. grab a hold of my gi, you can't throw me. So that's the same type of thing, right? If you can't, it's, it's really hard to do a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu submissions in gi if I can't get a hold of your gi, right? It's tough, right? right? There's some rear mm-hmm. naked chokes and there's some other things you can do, but it's really about that hand fighting. So it is a vital key concept that I think a lot of people miss out on and and don't start doing until very, very late in their journey. And mm-hmm. it, it would make jujitsu, it would make the suffering a little bit more enjoyable. Let's just yeah. put it that way. <laughs> Speaking of the hand fighting, you have some very interesting grips in terms of how you deal with the hands when you're in that power line from the back position. I noticed that you're, you're grabbing palms a certain way and even how you grip on maybe when you're going for the armbar, I believe your Kimura is very interesting. You're using your middle finger as a gauge to the wrist. Can you talk about those concepts briefly? Yeah. So what, what I'm trying to do there, you know, if you kind of do um, a traditional or standard grip, like a figure four grip or a Kimura grip where your pinky is kind of at the wrist. So the person can freely rotate and move their hand. That means that they can generate. It also means that they can grab a hold of something, right? Their fingers are there to grab onto a lapel to defend or to grab your hand or something and block. So I try to get my grips where I kind of control the blade of the hand or, you know, so for it's the same side, I'm kind of hooking and, and grabbing the blade of the hand. Or if I'm using a cross grip, I'll grab, you know, grab kind of like almost like a handshake type position. And, and you know, I think Charles had taught his his class about the, the ice cream cone. And what happens then is your control pulling the arm at the end of the lever. So it, it's it's really hard for someone at that point to really pull away and escape. And then mm-hmm. it also prevents you from being able to grab anything. If you do grab something, it's a very superficial grip with your finger. So it makes it so much easier that if someone does decide that they want to grab onto a lapel or belt to defend an arm bar or a kimura or something like that, it's a lot easier to strip it and to control it. And the grips usually lead into, if you want to, if you want to be really mean and dirty, you know, you can start setting up wrist locks and things like that too. Yeah. So, and once again, it's a, it's a nice concept that works 
And you'll you really notice it when you roll with someone that has a weight advantage or size or strength advantage on you when you lock that in because you kill their power and their ability to use their hands and, and generate any type of defense. And that's one of the key concepts I have too, is that you know when you're going for submissions, you have to understand what their primary mode of defense is. And mm. you know when you're attacking the upper body, it's always going to be the other limb you're not attacking. So if you're not addressing that as you're setting up your submissions, then you're giving your opponent an opportunity to defend. And I never want them to have an opportunity to defend. I want to completely shut it down. I want to be lazy with my jujitsu and know that when I go for this, it's going to be over and done with. And I think, yeah, you said about the arm bar. The other thing that I do, you know, a lot of people use their hands to kind of grip when they go to finish the arm bar. I like to kind of get a hook with my arm so that as I slide my arm up to the wrist, it's caught in the crook of my elbow so that now it's pinned. So I can pin my elbow to my chest or to my upper body your hands trapped in there. And it's not my hands fighting the rotation and everything of your arm. Now you're pinned and locked to my body. So now Mm -hmm. it becomes your elbow against my entire body. So it really helps prevent things like hitchhiker escapes and things like that, where people can kind of twist and turn their arms uh, to get out. I just find it's a, it's a higher level of control and I'm I'm not relying on my hand strength anymore. I'm relying Mm -hmm. on my arms and my upper body to connect and, and kind of staple that arm to me so that when I'm ready to go, I've got it. So many beautiful details too that you uh, have, and you guys got to check the video. That I think Matt has one in uh, Globetrotters video on YouTube regarding this uh, backpack type of detail. One of which was this armbar break that you use also, where you place your hand at the back of your head, I believe, as you're coming through in order to use your upper torso to break the defender's grips, correct? Yeah, it comes back to understanding how someone defends, you know, an armbar. And a lot of times, mm-hmm. you know, when you do a traditional armbar with the, you know, legs, you know, over the body. So, you know, one's kind of over the chest and the other is over the head. The arm that you're not attacking usually comes up and they, you know, they grab and they do, you know, their finger lock or whatever it is. Yeah. And we sit there and we pull and pull and pull and pull yeah. and pull. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's stupid easy, but all you need to do is either cross your feet underneath, you know, on their tricep and kind of sit up and pull that arm in so they can't pull anymore or just kind of sit up and cup that elbow and pull it in. Then you have that ability to use the rest of your upper body, you know, connect that wrist or that arm to your torso so that when you're moving, it's your body against their rotator cuff or against their, you know, their grip strength. And usually, you know, you're going to win out pretty quick on that. It just comes back to not only understanding the submission, but understanding what the defense mechanism is and killing the defense mechanism before I go for the sub. And then it makes submissions easy, right? You know, you'll watch competition footage and go, oh man, like Gordon Ryan, for example, to go, oh man, he makes jujitsu look easy, but he makes jujitsu look easy because he's got a check down list. And before he does anything, he's got that check down list. And until that check down list is all marked off, he's not moving on. And so it's the same thing with submissions. If if you kill all all their defense or only leave one defensive move for them to do, it's, it's very predictable and you can set that trap. There were a couple other beautiful details, one of which was, especially when you're playing the gi in this position, uh, very interesting stuff. One was a very simple thing that just a lot of people, we all fall guilty into not doing is this pulling the gi in order to feed it into the other hand where a lot of people, they, what do they do? The mistake, what's the mistake that they make typically? So when you're in a bone arrow choke position you know, the hand that's going to be doing the choking, which is, you know, under the arm, a lot of people, you know, once you get that into position and kind of lock it in, you have a high level of control. And what I see a lot of people doing is they'll reach that hand up 
around the neck trying to get a hold of the collar. Instead, keep that hand there and you use your other hand to feed the collar to the choking hand. And the level of tightness goes from two to like 2000 wow. right away. So you never lose the ability. And, you know, and I think I showed in that seminar is that once the choking hand's actually in place, there's a nice little gable grip choke that you can do there because you've got the carotid artery already blocked off in the right place. Right. There's no sense of moving that hand. So you can make jujitsu very easy. Mm-hmm. What we tend to do is make it difficult and add extra movement to it when we don't. So it was one of the things that I learned very early on with bow and arrow chokes or with collar chokes, period, is feed the collar to the choking hand, right? Once the choking hand's in the right place, leave it there because you've done all the work that you need to do to get it there. Don't open up any opportunity for them to, to avoid the choke or defend the choke and feed it. And, you know, to me in jujitsu, the choke is the ultimate submission, right? We laugh and say, Hey, we're simulated murdering one another, right? So (laughs) the choke is the kill, right? That's the one that puts you out. So anytime I have an opportunity to set up a choke and I can get my choking arm or hand in the right position, I'm going to do everything I can to keep it there. And then I'll use that other hand to kill the defense and then uh, help set it up and finish uh, finish the submission. The final detail that I loved about this is you do something that was very unconventional that I haven't seen, or maybe I've seen, I just don't remember, was typically people grab the nearest pant leg and you don't. Can you explain what you do and why? Yeah. So once again, it kind of goes along the whole thing of the power line. So when you're in a bow and arrow choke, I'm primarily sitting on, I'm on one side of the body and I have control of that shoulder and the head. So if I grab the leg that's nearest to me on the same side, if your opponent has been in that position before and they understand the defense, they're able to skip their hip, right? They're able to have hip mobility because they're still fairly straight, right? You haven't put the submission on yet. So they can kind of stiffen out and they can shift their hips and and kind of initiate escape. You know, it's not always going to happen, but you give them the ability. So what I like to do, if I can, I like to grab the opposing leg. And I like to pull them in so that I twist their body. So their spine's twisted now. I'm controlling that ability for that hip to move and it locks them down. And it's very uncomfortable so that when you do start to apply the choke, you're turning the head in one direction and their hips in the other. So you're, you know, you're, you're starting to twist them up and that puts a lot of added pressure into the body. It's taking all the slack out of it. And as they struggle, it actually makes the choke worse and worse. <laughs> yeah. It looks like it's like a complete alignment breakage. Literally. Yeah, it is. And the, and, yeah, and the hips are going in the so other tight. direction. Yeah. Um, now you, you don't always get that, but if you can, sure. to me, that's my interpretation of the best way to set up a bow and arrow choke when yeah. you're using the legs as a control. You know, as I showed in my seminar at camp, I can set up those bow and arrow or collar chokes just by controlling the other arm, the arm that's open to an arm bar, right? Mm-hmm. I can I can bring the hand in behind the head like a chicken wing choke, or I can mm-hmm. use that Kimura grip on the one hand and just kind of pull the shoulder towards me so that I'm controlling that rotation. You don't have to grab the legs. I've seen a lot of people abandon controlling that defensive hand and going for the legs and then opening things up and people escape. But that's why I say, you know, once, once that choking hand's in place, feed that collar there and figure out how you can control rotation, so that you can finish that choke. But yeah, grabbing that cross leg, once I show that to people and they feel and they experience it, it's one of mm-hmm. those kind of aha moments for them. And that's yeah. and that's why I do jujitsu, right? I'm, I'm trying to, I can show you how to do an arm bar that you've been taught and you've done a thousand times. What I'm trying to do is challenge myself to find a better way of doing it, a more efficient way of doing it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's kind of interesting. I've done a few seminars where I've asked someone in the, in the group and I say, you know, what's your favorite control? And they'll say, mount. Okay. And I'll say, what's your favorite submission? And they'll be like armbar. I said, why is an armbar your favorite control? And they think about it for a second. 
Because I said, if you really understand the submission and the control of the position, you should be able to have someone locked down in that arm bar, in a triangle, in an omoplata, in a leg lock position, whatever it is, that's your trap and control. And then you decide when you actually want to apply the submission to that, like let them struggle for five, 10, 15 seconds. If you can hold that position for that long, that means you're, you are in complete control. You have killed their defense. Mm-hmm. Now you have the right to get the submission. Mm-hmm. And I find in training, when I force my students to do that, people aren't getting hurt because no one's rushing to snap on an arm bar or you know, a shoulder lock or a choke, mm-hmm. right? Because they, they haven't met that le- what, what I call my level of perfection for that. So I'm very much into getting that control position then applying the, the submission at whatever rate or speed I need to. Now, if you're in a competition, it's different. You know, you're down by four points and there's like 20 seconds left. You got to go for it. But that's doing jujitsu by a rule set. I'm looking at it from the art form. And when I'm doing it as the art, I want the optimum level of control where I'm ex- using the least amount of energy and I don't have to hurt my training partner or my opponent. But they know that if I want to, I can, and you kind of leave it to them and, and, you know, you slowly put on your submission so that they can tap before it becomes a bad situation for them. You get that control. And then it sounds like you're very much a sort of, I'm going to take what you give me kind of guy. Is that a correct interpretation? Yeah, I'll, I'll take, yeah. Once I'm in that control, once I'm in that control position and I've, I've done my check down to where I understand what the high percentage defenses are for, for that position and, and try to shut them down, then it really limits what you can do. So it'll usually come down to, you're going to do one of two things. If you do A, I'm going here. If you do B, I'm going there, but I know I'm going to get you once I've locked down that position. So I, I try not to force anything at that point. Um, mm-hmm. Other than I have an arm bar control, I, I have a triangle control or something like that. Like I'm in that control position. I'm ready to set it up. But as I taught in my omoplata class at, at camp, I mean, I'm in the omoplata position, but I never showed you guys how to finish an omoplata. We went mm-hmm. to triangle chokes. We went to shoulder, lo- you know, we went to other types of shoulder locks. We went to arm bars and a whole bunch of different stuff because your opponent's never going to give you ex- what you want, Right. You can go in and say, okay, I want this guard pass. I want this control position. I want this mount and I want this submission. Very rarely does that ever happen because they're like, I want this. I want this. I want this. I kind of have a standard blueprint of of where I want to go and what I'm trying to do from a controlling position, but I never really try to force anything. Now, sometimes I'll go into training and say, okay, today I'm just working on triangle chokes, right? So I'll try to get into a triangle choke position. But in a general sense, you know, rolling with people, yeah, I don't have any, I don't have anything particular in mind other than I want to be on top. I want to control your power line. If I can control the power line from a top pin or from a back control, I'm happy with that because depending on now how you're going to move, I know which submissions are open to me from those positions. Don't take this the wrong way. But I noticed that when you are demoing on a, I believe a gentleman named Aaron was the Uke, your Uke, yes. correct? The brown belt. <laughs> When you demonstrate uh, technique and positions and finishes, you don't mess around. I mean, these these are like full-on finishing demonstrations that you're showing us. I mean, you can see the grimacing. I can see the veins popping. I can see the pain. You don't screw around. No, you know, and, and I guess, you know, there's, there's different philosophies in teaching. I, I want to show that. I want to show that the technique's real, that it's, it's not bullshit. It's not fluff. We're not messing around that if, that if you can get into these positions and get it tight, it's a very bad day for, for your opponent. And like I say, and that's why once you get to those positions, you know, you, you never saw me snap on a submission quick, right? It was right. always kind of a slow burn. And so you can see in that, even in a slow burn, 
how quick it comes on. It's choked, the head's getting red, the veins are starting to pop. And it also shows that, uh, you know, you don't need a lot of movement or you don't need to use a lot of power to do it. So that's kind of the way that I was brought up. And, you know, it looks probably worse than it really is, but I think it's important that, you know, we're in a combat art, right? We're in an art that's about breaking joints and, and choking people out. You need to see that it, it's truly, truly effective. Yeah. So that's, it's kind of my style. I, you know, some people think it's mean, but you know, it is what it is. It's jujitsu. I always say we're, we're not baking cookies. <laughs> yeah. You know, and even, even when you're baking, you got to break a few eggs, right? Right. Right. I was very sold when I saw that. I'm like, God, this is legit. All of this stuff is legit. Yeah. And that's, and that's a thing that it works. And, and what I want happens too, is that, you know, after you get a few reps of doing the technique and I'm able to help you guys correct it, that you're getting that, you're getting that same level of response from your training partner. So you know that it, this actually works. Like it does it. I don't have to be a black belt or have had to have been doing this for, for 10 years for this technique to work. If I can get into these positions and follow these key concepts, even a white belt, right? Mm-hmm. Submission. These are all things that white belts can do or anyone can do. If you follow those concepts and get in those positions, then these submissions Absolutely. are super tight. There's, there's little space for them to be able to defend. So earlier you mentioned that you're um, running, uh, I don't know what you would call it, running or a couple affiliates, correct? Yep. Can you talk about that and your concept of how academies should be run, culture, just overall that mindset mentality to the whole business? Yeah. So, so when I left the, the club that I was at, we, we started kind of training in, uh, in, in my garage and uh, in the basement of, uh, of a couple of the guys that we were training with. Mm. And then uh, the, main, the main school that I teach at right now, um, it's owned by one of my students. It's called uh, Browns Martial Arts in Waterdown, Ontario. And Jeff and his brother, Jason, run it. And uh, Jeff's a brown belt under me and Jason's a blue belt. That's kind of the main academy that I, that I teach at on Monday, mm. Wednesdays, and, and, and Sundays. Mm. And then uh, Aaron Esden, who was my uke at camp, he runs a school about an hour and a half away in London, Ontario, called Platinum Jiu-Jitsu. So, you know, I, I kind of float between, I've kind of float between those two clubs, you know, just kind of helping and instructing them. I like to give them the freedom to, to do what they want. You know, jujitsu is a weird thing. There's, there's some clubs and associations that have a hard, fast curriculum that they use. I never came up with a set curriculum. So the way that I like to teach personally is I like to take a subject matter and, and teach it over a four to six week period. So that way, whoever's in the room, we start from the very basics of the position and mm-hmm. we can advance it as far as we need to over four to six weeks. And people mm-hmm. get tons of reps in, but allows them to uh, you know, use it during their sparring because it's, it's always going to be there, right? We're always repeating it as a technique and we're advancing it and we get to go down some really cool rabbit holes <laughs> with that. And I think- What you would know, be an example of one of those? So like the backpack attack uh, okay. class that I taught in Arizona. So we worked backpack for about six weeks, you know, both gi, no gi. First off, it was about the position, how to control the position, all the subs that were in there. Then it got into, you know, how do we, how do we get to the backpack position from mm. different situations? Mm. And then it's, then it's great. After a couple of weeks, you start, you start seeing people start to use it. Right. And they're trying to use it on you. You know, if you look at anything that anything that's habit forming, they say, you know, it takes about six weeks to change a habit. So that's what I'm trying to do with the jujitsu. I'm trying to use that concept and say, okay, mm. instead of, you know, me coming in on Monday class and throwing five techniques at you. And then Wednesday, I'm throwing another five techniques at you and keep doing it that way. Some people learn that way, but I find the majority of people just that pick up one or two things and then they lose it. So I'd rather focus, have a longer focus on it. So now it becomes a habit for them. 
right? So they start doing it intuitively. Not everyone picks up the same level at the same time, but Mm -hmm. then the next time I come around to teaching a back control type of situation, I don't have to go back to the very beginning, right? We can Mm -hmm. kind of, we can kind of go back to the midpoint, remind people, everyone what's going on and then keep advancing from there. You know, people always ask me like, you know, how do you choose an academy and all that stuff? And you know, you've got to go where you're comfortable and where it makes sense for you. But Mm -hmm. I've, I've had a lot of success doing that and teaching that way. Um, with my students, I'm not saying it's for everyone, or I'm sure there's lots of people that are telling me I'm, you know, I'm full of shit and it's not the right way to do it. But I just think it's, I think it's a great way to reinforce, you know, they say you need to do 10,000 reps before you become good at anything, but I I want those 10,000 reps to be done in live drilling, very situational specific drilling, but then also in live roles. And I think if you, if you focus on something like that for a month and a month and a half, people are going to start doing it when they do their live roles, right? Because they feel comfortable with it. They've, they've had enough practice with playing with different positions and now they're able to experiment. Has there been a time you considered quitting? It sounds like the academy jump was, there were some disheartening experiences early on before maybe you went to camps and who knows what else? No, I, I never thought about quitting. I had an injury, I ruptured a disc in my neck. You know, it was kind of like, how am I going to get back? Right. How am I going to get back on the mats? And it took me, it took me a couple of months to kind of rehab and get back there. But no, I never, I've never thought about quitting, you know, that neck injury. Just a couple months. Yeah. I mean, I was back on the mats, but I, I mean, I wasn't back to full sparring and everything, but I, w- I was actually on the mats starting to do a little bit of drilling and, and starting to get body, you know, body motion and movement and, mm. uh, and moving around a little bit, but never quit. I mean, that, that injury changed my mindset on competition, right? Mm. I didn't compete a whole lot after that sure. just because the risk and reward wasn't, you know, I'm not going to be a world champion. So risking my health, long-term health, especially with a neck injury or something like that wasn't worth it. You know, Did you get um, surgery? No, I never had surgery. My doctor said that uh, he, my mutant power is that uh, I have very large uh, nerve channel in my spine. So I was very lucky and fortunate. It, you know, it acts up every once in a while, but it taught me to uh, protect my head quite a bit. <laughs> so no <laughs> stacking that. mat, everyone. Yeah, I try. I try not to get stacked, and when I do the next day, I'm a little. I'm a little bit cringe. But no, I, I never. I never really thought about quitting. And I know that happens to a lot of people, right? There's a large attrition in, in jujitsu, and you know the the laugh is always kind of you know you get the blue belt blues, and a lot of people leave when. Once they get their blue belt. And to me, I, the way that I kind of explain that and, you know, my experience of, of being a blue belt and living through that is, you know, you get that belt level and you think you're great, right? But there's still white belts that can beat the crap out of you. And now you get three, four stripe blue belts that are almost purple belts that beat yeah. the crap out of you on a regular basis. So it's one of those transition belts where it really, it really plays with your mind, right? Cause you're, you're starting to get good at jujitsu, but you're still not that great at it. Right. There's still a lot to learn and, and a lot mm-hmm. to develop and, and a lot to see. So I think from a developmental standpoint, blue belt's very hard and it just becomes easy for people to let life happen at that point mm-hmm. and have an excuse not to go. You know, you see some people come back after taking layoffs there, but that's usually the one, you know, I joke, I go, if you're white belt, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to learn your name when you're a blue belt, because when you're blue belt, I only have to remember probably about 30% of your names. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So how about those that are suffering through uh, plateaus? What is your advice to those people? Yeah, I think when you're suffering through a plateau, you, I think you got to reflect on why. Like, what are you trying to do? You know, sometimes it's a mental block. Like you're, you know, you're trying to learn a specific technique or move and it, it just may not be for you, right? Like there's people that want to be a Berlin Bolo expert. Maybe mm-hmm. your body's not built for that, right? Maybe your body's not built for that. So you keep trying and trying and trying and trying and trying. I'm at that point is saying, you know what? You're mentally burnt out and blocked. 
take a break from it. Find something else that you want to do. You know, I've got a couple of guys that come to me and say, hey, you know, I, I, I do feel like I'm a plateauing. I'm not advancing. And I said, well, when you go into role, what's your intention? They go, well, what do you mean? I said, to me, you should have a clear intention every time you roll. Don't hmm. just roll to roll, right? You're wasting, you're wasting reps at that point, right? That's like going to the gym and, you know, you say, I want to, you know, I want to build a bigger chest. And if all you do is warm up sets, right. And you never put that resistance, the maximum resistance on, on the muscles are never, they're never going to grow. So if you're just going into roll to roll, you might be missing out on an opportunity. So I go make a contract with yourself, say for the next month, my goal is not to get my guard passed, right? When you start at the beginning of it, you do 10 rounds and in all 10 rounds, you got your guard passed, right? Write that down. Kind of that's your baseline, your snap, your line. Hopefully, as you focus on that guard retention every week, it's getting a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. So after a month or six weeks, now when you do those ten sparring sessions, maybe you only got your guard passed twice, and it, mm-hmm. you got your guard passed twice because they were you were rolling with a, a higher level belt or someone that outweighed you, or you were just it was the last round and you were tired as hell and, and you couldn't do it. So I think a lot of times when people hit plateaus they really don't have a specific goal in mind other than get better at jujitsu. But mm. if you're going to get better at jujitsu, you have to have some specific goals. So I always, I always encourage people to, to set a goal, set an intention when you go. And I think that really will help you. And once again, it gives you a goal and a focus when you show up a class, right? Rather than just showing up and going, okay, we're going to roll today. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I think it's a good way to kind of challenge yourself. And once again, set an intention, set a goal, be very specific of what you want to do. I mean, there are times it's fun to just kind of, you know, I do it. I just kind of go in and roll, but when I go and roll too, I'm also assessing my students, right? Like I'm trying to give up stuff to them, see how they're, how they're doing things. But I think as, as a colored belt, as you say, when you're kind of hitting a plateau, kind of look back and go, why? Do I have an intention? Am I just rolling for the sake of rolling or I'm rolling for the sake of trying to learn and develop a new skill? And if you are trying to learn and develop a new skill, you should have that written down somewhere, have that contract with yourself that that's what you're trying to do and you know, keep a record of it. And if you're really having a hard time with it, then go talk to your coach and say, hey, I've been trying to do this, but I'm getting nowhere. I'm not advancing on it. And it may be something simple that you need to have corrected, or you may just say, you know what, that particular thing is just not for you right now. Just put it aside and try to focus on something else. I want to talk about your observations on the direction you see jujitsu going in the future of jujitsu. You mentioned earlier that you see blue belts sometimes that are like purple belts, that equivalent, because what I see with, you know, with the advent of these, even BJJ Globetrotter videos, camps or whatever too, you get so much data, younger people getting younger, starting at a younger, younger age with a better instruction, as you've mentioned before. And you even mentioned earlier that you can accelerate learning and progressing in this art. So uh, I'm curious, it seems like there's a new breed of people coming up that are just so incredibly talented. Talented. How do you see this thing progressing? Yeah, it, it's interesting. I remember a couple of years ago at one of the camps, Chris Howder was there. And, uh, you know, for those that don't know Chris Howder, he was one, he's, you Thank know, you. he's the dirty dozen, right? He's one of the original American black belts and great guy. And he, you know, he's been to a bunch of Globetrotter camps and we were kind of sitting around and, and asking that. And someone, I think, I can't remember who asked the question, but they said, Chris, like what belt level today would be equivalent to a black belt, you know, back when you were doing it in the nineties. And he said, you know, a purple belt. Right, a purple belt, a competitive purple belt today would probably go back and beat the black belts of of when he was coming up through the ranks. So, yeah, I mean, the access to information is there. I think how people are training now, people are cross training, like they're they're actually they're training at this almost like a professional athlete. I mean, some of them are professional athletes, but people are mm-hmm. doing strength and conditioning. There's better advancements in nutrition and recovery. So it just lends that you're going to have you know an accelerated learning curve, and plus the sport is just attracting more and more people. You know, the myth of jujitsu 
jujitsu that Helio Gracie was this fragile guy that could hardly, you know, do a push up or a sit up. I mean, it's bullshit. The guy was almost a triathlon, right? Was he a smaller guy? Yeah, but he was physically fit and he can do his stuff. So you're seeing people that would have excelled in athletics in any sport that they're doing and they're coming into jujitsu. So they have that natural attribute and now they have all this access to information and higher levels of training, um, better instruction, better coaching that's there. It's just going to accelerate the sport and the art side of it. But, uh, you know, there's a conversation that we could probably talk to for an hour or more on. It's the sport versus the art because they're, they're very different to me. Mm-hmm. The sport, if you're doing IBJJF or, or whatever, I mean, you, you're doing your jujitsu for a very specific rule set. So there's things that you won't do because they're not allowed in the rule set. But if you're training jujitsu for the art, there's things that you'll do that are considered illegal in a specific rule set that you would never work, you would never train. But in the art side of it or the self-defense side of it, you're going to work on. Unless you're going to a competitive school where they're doing MMA as well as competitive jujitsu, probably no one at that club has ever thrown a kick or a punch or had a kick or punch thrown at them. On the art side of it, I think everyone who's studying jujitsu for the art side of it should have a basic level of understanding of striking. Because if you're using it from a self-defense standpoint, if you're using it from an art standpoint, which was proven you know, in the UFC when Hoist went in for the first time, I mean, they weren't the best strikers, but they understood how to strike. They understood the offensive part of it and how to apply the defense to it. That's a totally different thing that you're going to work on. So it really depends on, are you in it for the sport or are you in it for the art? And I think there's different mentalities there and you will attract different people for that. But I think either way, it's it's just at an accelerated pace versus, you know, even when I started almost 20 years ago, I go to some clubs and I roll with blue belts and purple belts and it's, you know, they're younger and athletic compared to me. And, you know, it's all the tricks and experience that I have to kind of, you know, keep them off of me from killing me. Right. Because there's a technical level that they have that they're dangerous. And they also have these physical attributes that make them dangerous as well. Tell me about some of the jujitsu practitioners that you admire and why. A lot of the guys I admire are, are people that probably no one's ever heard of. I mean, a lot of people that I've met through through camps, but, you know, well-known names. I think, you know, Hadra Gracie, I admire that guy because he takes a very basic level of jujitsu, kind of an old school level of jujitsu. And he, you know, he beats the modern game with it through just basics and fundamentals. And he really shows how effective that can be if you, once again, it's, it's about checking off those boxes when you're doing stuff and not rushing it. You know, Gordon Ryan, what he did back in what it was a 2019 when he did his run at ADCC. I know some people don't like his personality and how he handles you know, himself, but if you look at his jujitsu, it's amazing how quickly that guy has come up through the ranks and how he just really obliterated every high-level guy that was out there. And he, yeah. you know, he's willing to fight anyone, anywhere, under you know any rule set. You have to admire that and it worked. But if you see what he does, he's very systematic in what he does and he checks those boxes and he, he makes jujitsu look easy. As much as I want to see him and Galvao fight, I don't think that fight's going to happen. I think someone's going to step out last minute, but I, I'd love to see that super fight next year to really mm. see who's the best mm-hmm. <laughs> in that side of it. And then once again, that's old school versus new school jujitsu. But but if you look at how both of those guys go about the game, they're very systematic, right? They they know what they're looking for. They they're completely shutting down the defense of their of their opponent and then basically breaking their will and being able to impose whatever they want on them and get the job done efficiently without taking too much damage. And I think that's the ultimate goal of jujitsu is being efficient. You don't get hurt and your opponent doesn't have to get really doesn't have to get hurt either. In your mind, what makes a great jujitsu student? You need someone, and it's tough because every belt level, I think the expectations are a little bit different. Um, How so? 
I just think from a maturity level and, mm-hmm. you know, when someone's coming in with a white belt, I don't have, there's certain levels of ego and uh, being humble that, that has to be broken, you know, to, to really excel at this art and do it long-term to get a black belt and continue on and do this for 20, 30, 40 years. We always talk about it's ego, right? It's a big ego check. It's one of those things that I have seen guys, I've trained with guys that are super talented athletically. They picked up jujitsu quickly, but it messed with their minds, right? They say they would hit a plateau or they were the top guy in the gym for a while. And then someone exceeded them or they get in a competition, they totally get destroyed. So that ego thing is a, is a huge part of it and being able to be humble and understand and kind of embrace the suck and know that it's not going to come easy. <laughs> it's never going to come easy. I, I had a student just recently, you know, I did a belt promotion and this guy had only been training with me for about two months. And he's like, when do I get my blue belt? And I said, well, when you can beat all the other blue belts in the room, that's when you get it. It could be six months from now. It could be six years from now. I don't know. That's up to you. So I think you know a good student is you know someone who's attentive. And to me, it's not about the guy that comes to class like eight days a week, right? I always tell my students, I go, if you can only train one day a week and that's all you can train, that's great. You come in for that one day you train, but you put everything into it. If you can only train two days a week, that's great. But if you have the ability to train five days a week, but you only show up twice, then you got to mm. ask yourself, well, what are you in jujitsu for, right? Don't come and tell me you want to be the best. You don't, you want to be a world champion. You want to learn, you want to accelerate, you want to do these things if you're not putting everything in. You know, so a good student is whatever time they have available to them to train, they're there and they're not wasting a rep, right? They're not joking around. They're not fooling around. They're not, you know, sitting over in the corner talking when you're showing technique or when you're giving them time, you know, to work on technique and drill, you know, they don't just do it three times and then they stop, right? And and you'll kind of see that. And, you know, you got to try to navigate those waters and, and push people to take it a little bit more serious. But I think it's, you'll see it that they're attentive. They may be taking notes. They may have their phone out shooting video of what you're showing, but they're taking advantage of every single minute that they're on the mats. And that's, you know, if you want to be a true student of the art, that's what you have to do. It's, you have to be kind of obsessed with it in a healthy way, be obsessed with the art and what you're trying to do to, uh, to excel. Let's flip the coin. Conversely, what makes a great teacher? Yeah. So teaching is a completely different skill. I have done seminars with world champions and they're horrible instructors, horrible. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I've done seminars with people that like with globetrotters that people that no one has ever heard of and they're amazing. So it's a skill set in its own. And once again, you need to work on it and you need to understand that it's something that has to be worked. It has to be practiced, right? You know, the first time you teach a class, it's probably going to be a gong show, right? And it's not going to go over that well. But once again, you need to look for that feedback. You need to be critical on yourself in a constructive way of how you can become better. And once again, it's it's just a lot of practice. I've been lucky enough in my career outside of jujitsu where I've been in leadership roles. So it's I guess it's come a little bit easier for me to, to do that because... I've been in those positions where I've been a coach and a mentor to people in the business world. But I think the other thing too is that, and this is where I had kind of a problem with my old coach, is he wanted to be the sole source of jujitsu for his students. Mm. And that's an impossible task. Mm. One person cannot teach you everything. So you need to respect that. You need to understand the needs of your students and, and kind of what makes them tick. You know, some of them need tough love, other ones need to be treated with, you know, kick gloves, but you've got to push them to that breaking point, right? And I always tell people, like, I will push you till you break, right? Because when you're physically tired, you've only pushed maybe about 40% of the way. I think David Goggins talks about that, right? When you think you're tired and you're done, you're only 40% of your effort in. So you, you have to get past that and push that. So you've got to find the right way to do that with your students and encourage them and not let them quit. Cause a lot of them will want to quit during a role or they have a hard time or whatever and do that. But a lot of it is just, 
watching other people that have been teaching longer than you. I think that's one of the advantages that I've had with all the traveling that I've done, both when I'm working and, and visiting other clubs and also with Globetrotters. I get to see different teaching styles and kind of in my mind, what kind of works when I'm watching and observing students working technique, like are they getting it, the way that he's talking, the way, the way that the person's showing the technique, does it work? So a lot of observation of that, educating yourself, you know, reading books and I say, and watching that and, and then kind of coming back and saying to yourself, going, okay, when I teach, how long does it take for someone to pick up on this? Am I doing the best job that I can? And in receiving feedback, I'm very open with my students and I'll say, okay, we're going to work on this. If you think something's not going to work, whatever, and you want to call bullshit on it, call bullshit on it. I'm okay with that. And if you see that there's a better way or you think there's a better way we can do it, let's experiment with and try it. And, and I've done that before. I've shown a technique and in the course of going around the class and watching people go, someone will say, hey, well, what happens if we do this or I did that? And we'll try it. and I'll go, okay, let's bring everyone back and let's show them this because you know what? This is actually a better way to approach it. Once again, you need to be open. You need to be humble. Your ego needs to be in check. You have to be willing to be wrong <laughs> and learn from your mistakes. And I know for some people that are black belts, that's difficult for them to do. You can't be the sole source of information. I think students, they need to have a home base where they're going to go back and that's their home base, that's their team, that's their coach, that's going to support them through their jujitsu journey. But they have to have the ability to do some cross-training. Leg locks. Do I know leg locks? Yeah. Do I know enough to be dangerous and to teach the basics of it? Absolutely. But if I have someone who wants to compete in no gi and you know EBI rule set or something like that, and they want to get in a really advanced leg lock game, it's my job as a coach to facilitate that learning for them. So I will go and help them find someone that I think is trustworthy that'll help them in that journey. I think that's part of it too, right? You have to be very open-minded. You need to understand what you know, what you don't know. And if you can't learn it and you can't show it, then to facilitate that learning for your students as well. And then you'll have that loyalty, right? A lot of people fear that if your student goes to that other club and they learn that they're going to leave you. No, I think if they understand that you're okay with it and you're helping to facilitate that, they'll actually respect you more and there'll be a higher level of loyalty. That's It's a two-way street. It's not forced and they'll come back, right? And they'll, and they'll take whatever they learn and come back and say, hey coach, look what I learned, right? Mm -hmm. So now they become the leg lock expert in your club and they actually help you now that when there's someone in your club that wants to become a leg lock expert, you've got some built in-house uh, you know, expertise. Okay. So we're in the holiday season right now. As of this recording, give me your top five or 10 jujitsu related purchases. You can never go wrong with a gi, right? I've got too many of them. I always a particular gi, a certain uh, weave. Uh... The gis that I like right now are inverted gear, and actually, the the people that own inverted gear, they they're involved with Globetrotter, so it gives me the ability to kind of support them. But I like inverted gear gis, especially the lightweight ones. So when I travel, I can wash them and hang them up in, in the way that they go. So an inverted gear gi is always good. The Theragun or massage therapy guns, I think that's a vital tool that if you don't have one, that's a great Christmas gift for yourself, along with a foam roller and, and some of those, you know, physio balls is, is a great thing to do. Oh, hell yeah. Lacrosse yeah. balls. I love those. Yeah. Lacrosse yeah. balls. They're great. And, uh, you know, supplementation and, and recovery stuff. CBD is, it's a great product. I had back in 2019, I had two tears in my rotator cuff and I, I relied heavily on CBD to get through all the training and the camps and all that stuff. So, so was uh, it the oil or the lotion or, or what? I was doing both. I was doing topicals. And I was also doing the drops as well. And then, you know, a nice belt, right? You got to have a nice belt. Oh. You got to have a belt that you like, especially when you're a black belt, because it's going to be the belt you're going to have for the rest of your life. Oh, you got to have, I you got to have go a cheap, nice, okay. so I, so I don't go cheap. So I, I like the Katero belts. I've got three of them. 
How do you spell that? C-A-T-A-A-R-O. They're based in the U.S. and they uh, they custom make the belts to the length and you can wow. get you get embroidery on it. You can get your rank stripes sewed on and all that stuff. But I, I wow. really like it. They're a great belt. It's my favorite belt. And I did that when I was when I got my black belt. I have my original belt that I got that Christian tied around my waist and I keep that. That's off to the side. That's part of my museum. But I, yeah, I, I spent a lot of time trying to find that belt that I really liked. And I, I probably bought about eight or nine different belts until I ran the Katara and I'm like, I like this belt. And I got three of them. So I, I keep them in rotation. Awesome. <laughs> Matt, in closing here, can you tell us more how the listeners can get a hold of you and purchase your products? Yeah. So I have I have one instructional video right now on BJJ Fanatics. It's called Introduction to Powerline with Modified Kezakatami. I'm in the process of putting material together for a second BJJ Fanatics video, which uh, I'm going to hopefully film at the end of this month or early January. So that'll probably be out for distribution you know, early next year. On Instagram, you can follow me. It's JITSROLL. So it's J-I-T-S-R-O-L-L-Z. I just started TikTok this week. So I actually put my first TikTok video. Was, uh, it was a cut from camp. And in less than 24 hours, I had over 500 views. So I'm going to start building some content on there between TikTok and Instagram, just showing quick 30 to 60 second clips of some technique, kind of tease people. And on TikTok, it's Earl Gray, BJJ. So you can follow me there. And then you can Google my name and the, the two Globetrotter uh, videos that I have are up there. And hopefully uh, the third one's coming soon from the Arizona camp. Well, Matt, it was a real pleasure. And everyone out there, Remember, give us the thumbs up, the subscribe, the five-star review on iTunes. Check out all our stuff. It's the holidays. Buy our swag, teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. We're selling everything at cost. And yeah, what a great conversation. I can't wait to do part two with you, Matt. Thanks so much yeah, for your time. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. All right. See you guys.